Куча лубезны совсем не под пару. Well, hello and welcome to Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Uh, Rusana won't be with us for the next few episodes. She's working on a few stories for upcoming shows and will return in a few weeks. A few announcements before we get started today. First, we opened a merch store. It's called The Knot's Nest. So far, it has t-shirts, stickers, and notebooks with the Eurasian Knot logo. We're going to add a few more items in the future. To find it, Go to youranot.org and click on the Knot's Nest in the menu. I also put a link in the show notes. We also released our second Substack newsletter last week. It has updates from Dasha and Rusana on what they've been up to this summer. And it also has my first dispatch on making The Reddest of the Blacks, my upcoming audio documentary on Love at Fort Whiteman, the only known black American victim of Stalin's terror. Now, these dispatches will give updates on the progress of the documentary. I will also share materials, some audio clips, texts, and images that I've collected that are related to Fort Whiteman's story. Um, a lot of it will be things that I can't address in the actual documentary, though, so you'll learn a lot more from uh, reading these posts than the documentary itself when I release it. I made the first entry open to everyone, but future ones will only be available to Patreon members of the Eurasian Knot. So if there's an encouragement to become a patron, that's one of them. And speaking of Patreon, we've redesigned all the tiers with new ex and expanded benefits. Uh, so check those out. We have some cool items that you can get as a patron, as well as the, uh, some discount codes for books from Cornell University Press, and of course, the aforementioned uh, Fort Whiteman posts. We're still processing some of the data from our listener survey. You've all given us some things, really interesting things to consider as we move forward. But I have to say, one thing that jumped out at me is that over two-thirds of respondents are not patrons. You listen, you teach. I know a lot of you do. And you might even use the podcast in your classroom. Uh, maybe you use it for professional reasons to keep up to date on you know, new stories about the region. But you don't give a dime. Now... The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, but they don't pay for a lot of what goes on into making this podcast. Sure, they pay my salary, and they pay Dasha a measly $16 an hour, uh, something that I'm trying to boost up because $16 an hour is not a fair wage, but they don't pay for Rusana or the hosting of the show or the software subscriptions or equipment and other things that go into making this podcast possible. That all comes from patrons and from me. So don't be part of the shameful two-thirds. If you have the financial means, go to patreon.com slash or to uranaut.org and become a patron. If you don't have the means, ask somebody who does, or help out by telling your friends and family about the show or share it on social media. It's the least you can do to help us out. So this is the first episode of a series called Religion in Post-Socialist Societies, and it was organized as the spring interview series for Reese at the University of Pittsburgh, where I'm based at, and with Zuzana Bogomil, who is at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. And Zuzana is here with me now to introduce these interviews. So just to give uh, listeners a sense of who you are, why don't you briefly introduce yourself? Thank you. So my name is Susanna, and I think it is 
good to say why I'm Susanna, because there is a reason behind it. So, and the reason is very connected with our podcast, in fact, the, and the, with the Eastern Europe and the role of the rock and roll in uh, this region. Uh, I'm Susanna because of the song, which was very popular. And the story that I was uh, said when I was a child, and I was fed this with this story, is that there was this song, Susanna, I'm crazy, loving you. And it was said that it was an American song, so you are Susanna. The, the problem is hmm. that... Who sings it? Do you remember who sings it? Yeah, that was the art company. To sit together on the sofa With the music way down low Waited so long for this moment It's hard to think it's really so The door is locked, there's no one The problem is that the song was recorded uh, five years after my birthday. And it was not the American song and it was not the rock and roll. It is, yeah, it is like rock band, but it was the Dutch band. And I think that this story about my name, because I, as I said, the whole my childhood, I heard why I'm Susanna because of that song and it was so important for us. You know, the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s is a very very politically difficult time in Poland, but, but there is little true behind it. And probably because of that, when I started my academic career, I became interested in memory processes. And if, if you ask me who I am in my professional life, so I am anthropologist and a sociologist who tried to understand the memory processes in this region and also why we give some some meanings to some some past events so that would be short well that actually goes well with this series and you you originally approached me with uh the topic of religion in post-socialist societies and and the role it plays in in the past and in the present what interests you about this subject why this subject of religion there are a few reasons so probably the first and the most obvious and the banal is that religion and spirituality matter in human lives. That's why we simply didn't have such, you didn't have such podcast in your, uh, on your podcast platform and it was worth making. But of course it was also important because the socialist states were uh, fought against religion and they were obsessed with religion. And because of that, it was really very important to have such series on the role of religion uh, in Eastern Europe, Russia, and Eurasia. But I think that we can also say that it is not only that the communism was obsessed, but after the fall of the communism, we the societies entered the transition time. And uh, in this transition time, there was so much fear and search for a new identity that many societies turned towards religions. And... Uh, then again, you know, new modernities, modes of modernities came, and it is absolutely fantastic when you see, you know, Eastern Europe, for instance, and all the Asian former Soviet republics, how differently they approach religion. 
So it was very important. First of all, that we had this obsession with religion by the communists and these very various approaches to religion uh, in the post-socialist societies, which before the communism were very various, multinational and multi-religious. And that's probably the most important why we decided to make this series. Well, our first interview is with Catherine Warner on the topic of lived religion in the Soviet Union. And um, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about the importance of lived religion as a subject that we talk about in this interview with Catherine Weiner. It was a very important episode, and I think that, that, that we decided to make it as the first because lived religion is how ordinary people feel and uh, understand religion and live the religion in their everyday life including domestic works, communities, commercial. So there is a many layers of this lived religion that are important to, to follow. And I think that uh, Katie gives us a many very interesting example yeah, how various people lived their religion in the Soviet Union. Uh, but what I think is also important that uh, when you listen to this podcast, you can a little bit broaden your knowledge because you can ask, and what about lived religion now? Because yeah, the communism was uh, against religion and people had to hidden. But you know, we see very secularized society now. And what is the lived religion of believers now in this society? So I think this uh, podcast gives us a lot of information, not only on the communist times, but also on how the situation looks like now in the uh, secularized societies. Well, thank you, Susanna. Our guest today is Catherine Warner. She's a professor of history, anthropology, and religious studies at Pennsylvania State University. And her most recent book is Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Catherine Warner. <laughs> I wanted to start. I, I always like to ask people these questions just because it's it's I'm interested personally. And, you know, you've published three books and three edited volumes on religion in Ukraine specifically. And I'm actually really interested. How did you get to these questions of religious belief and practice? What drew you to dedicate so much scholarly attention to it? I became interested in this quite by accident. I'd never set out to study religion. Um, I was initially interested in how Ukrainians uh, understood their history. The 20th century was not kind to Ukraine, and there were many um, tragic episodes, uh, many of which were barely addressed or were came under heavy censorship. So what was known about them officially very often differed from people's actual experiences and memories of those same events. So initially in the 1990s, I set out to study history and how people understood their history and what effect this might have in, in terms of crafting uh, a sense of nationhood in Ukraine. But it was precisely at this time that so many people were interested in religion. And this was a topic that I initially had not anticipated would come up again and again and again in many, many of my interviews. And so after just a few years, uh, I would say 
uh, sort of curiosity got the cat. And I began to think, why is this such a pressing issue? Um, and why I was really intrigued by the fact that uh, in the former Soviet Union, by and large, people referred to it as a religious renaissance that they were experiencing. Whereas in the West, we very often called it a res religious resurgence. In other words, gave it a decisively ominous and even negative cast. And so I was interested in exploring uh, why this sudden outpouring of religion and the various expressions of religiosity it generated uh, after 74 years of pronounced state policies of promoting atheists. It sounds like you were maybe surprised uh, did you have, was there an assumption you had that these people speaking in these religious terms kind of surprised you? On some level, I was a little bit taken aback. Um, uh, I, I, I subsequently joked that I think a lot of that anti-religious propaganda, the folks who were actually reading it was, they were the folks like myself sitting in the West. <laughs> and we actually were the ones who thought uh, it generated a certain, I mean, of course it did generate a certain reality, but I think we overestimated um, the success of those deliberate uh, attempts to cultivate a, uh, a secular worldview. I think you're absolutely right. I think those of us who study those places maybe imbibed a little bit too much and it shaped our assumptions. And, and I think, and, and you know, it's a lot of the reading and conversations I've had with people like you who study questions of religion, um, it has shown that um, all of a lot of those assumptions are really exaggerated or just wrong. Um, I'm actually also curious, you know, you're, now you, you set with this question, you, you ran into people speaking about in religious terms and questions of memory, how they understand their identities, et cetera, daily life. And I'm, I'm curious about how you approach these things as a researcher, because you write in your own biography that you're a cultural anthropologist who does historically informed ethnographic research. And I'm uh, uh, curious what... It, how does this rep approach relate to the everyday religious practices? Well, um, you know, as an anthropologist who does ethnographic research, you know, interview-based or life history-based research, um, there's clearly like a very uh, prominent contemporary component there. But especially when it comes to religion, but not only religion, when you study this part of the world, it's really not possible to begin in the year 2023 because, you um, the, the past uh, imposes itself on so many uh, ways of thinking and, and, and practices, everyday practices, and really just the landscape, be it the urban landscape, the religious landscape. Uh, one is constantly reminded of that phrase by William Faulkner. I mean, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. And I find that to be uh, especially true uh, in many regions of Eastern Europe. And so that's why uh, I was always committed to um, not observing the traditional periodization, that is to say, considering the Soviet period up until 1991 and then the post-Soviet period. I was always bridging different regimes and different temporal framings and different time periods and different places because I think that's how those things are lived and experienced. I think that's what informs the way people think. So do, do you, I mean, we're going to get more into this, but it, it, later in our conversation, but just as a, as a preview. So do you feel that, I mean, a lot of times when we think of saying, 
something like, say, the, the end of the Soviet system or the end of communism in Eastern Europe, we tend to consider it as a break or a threshold. And is it fair to say that you're, you're I mean, of course, you're interested in the, the break, the changes, but you also want to emphasize with this historical approach, uh, the continuities. Well, I'm interested in analyzing the dynamics that drive certain um, cultural beliefs and certain cultural practices. And very often, you know, a historical legacy or, or certain historical events uh, propel those dynamics forward. They're not the only dynamics that are operative. I mean, obviously, there's political, economic, and, and so on, uh, other kinds of concerns. Um, but, you know, you asked also earlier what, what made me interested in this topic. Um, of course, towards the end of the Soviet Union in 1988, you know, we had the commemoration of the, the millennial uh, Christianization of Kiev and Rus. And so on one level, after, you know, this pronounced decades of Soviet promotion of atheism, it was also quite stunning to see that at that time it was the Soviet state itself commemorate Christianity um, and, and commemorate it in such a way that it was highlighting a 1,000 year history of Christianity in the region. And so in that sense, um, I think that kind of confluence of factors, that begins to, even though that occurs during the Soviet period, that begins to explain why after 1991, you have this really a, a, an enormous explosion in interest in religion that was then further driven by a multitude of religious groups going to the former Soviet Union so as to missionize. And that was also something that caught my attention. I mean, here you have people that are traveling there to bring God, so to speak, to um, these people who had been subject to militant atheism. And yet here they had just commemorated the 1000 year anniversary of Christianity. And that sort of counterintuitive, paradoxical uh, play of forces, um, that also drove my interest. Uh, you know, and then there were these sort of humorous moments when I when I would travel to either Russia or Ukraine. And in the 1990s, I often felt as if I was the, I, I felt as if I was the only person who wasn't on some mission. I was the only one who was not part of a missionary group. And that reason too, I started thinking, how do these, for me, I focused on Ukraine, how do these Ukrainians understand um, this plethora uh, of religious groups that are coming to bring religion to them, you know, after they just commemorated uh, 1000 years of Christianity? I actually have a question about that because I know you devoted a whole study to this, but the international dynamics and influence like you said, mission, you know, these missions coming to proselytize in Ukraine, for example, where they already have their traditions and religion and long thousand year history, et cetera. How did Ukrainians view outsiders coming in, sometimes not even with, you know, the native religions of Ukraine? You're right. It was a wide spectrum of religious groups that came in, um, some of which had slim, if any, historical roots. Um, interestingly, I think at that time, uh, there was tremendous openness um, and curiosity towards all things that they had difficulty being exposed to uh, in the Soviet Union. So there was tremendous openness and willingness to listen and engage. And I think in terms of the Ukrainian state, uh, over time, it both either 
found it not really worth it to try to control this flow of, of missionary groups and their printing of religious literature and their renting of religious buildings and so on and so on. Uh, they're either not choosing not to try to control it. And then afterwards, I think sometimes not even being able to control it. Um, I saw Ukraine becoming then very much this gateway to the other former republics of the Soviet Union, where those regimes sometimes could control and were committed to controlling. But of course, they couldn't really control Ukrainians and they couldn't uh, control things coming from Ukraine. So Ukraine um, quickly became this bridge, if you will, that allowed many um, religious actors, uh, once again, of a wide confessional spectrum, to set up shop in Ukraine uh, to then not only missionize in Ukraine, but beyond to the former Soviet Union. That included everything from a wide spectrum of Protestant groups, um, Pentecostals and Charismatics to the Mormons and, and, and a variety of Muslim groups and a variety of Jewish groups and Buddhist and right on New Age groups, right on down the line. Um, Ukraine was open and Ukrainians were open um, and legislatively and legally it was all possible. And so you had very much of a, uh, a vibrant religious landscape um, taking seed and growing. Well, let, let's back up a bit to to the Soviet period. You know, we, we often hear about people who lived what we like to call double lives in the USSR. You know, publicly they're secular, privately they're religious. And one such kind of famous example is a man named Gleb Kaleda, who was a prominent Soviet geologist, who was a secretly ordained Russian Orthodox priest who conducted clandestine masses in his apartment. Um, how typical were people like this? Not necessarily him as a ordained priest, but people who led these quote unquote double lives, if we can call them, even if maybe their lives weren't really double. I don't think it was typical, um, but I do think sort of going back to what we mentioned earlier, I think most uh, Western scholars um, misunderstood the extent to which there were a variety of informal, one could even say folk practices. They often were written off as superstitions and things of that nature. So I think people misunderstood the extent to which um, there were certainly um, religious sensibilities were being uh, cultivated all along the way. And I think even more so, they uh, underestimated the tenacity of some religious groups to nonetheless risk incurring the wrath of the Soviet state and to find ways and mechanisms by which they could have some kind of a communal life. Um, the second book I wrote was about focused specifically on Baptist and Pentecostals because they were among the most uh, ardently committed to practicing religion. And of course, religion is by nature a communal, a group activity, but it was precisely that kind of visible, collective display of religiosity that the Soviet Union or the Soviet state was invested in curtailing. That is precisely what they did not want. Uh, but when a, um, a person or a group of people are committed to doing just that, uh, the possibilities uh, for invention, innovation, and even subversion are endless. And so I was really taken aback and, and quite surprised at the extensive networks that these Baptist and Pentecostals uh, could in fact build throughout the former Soviet Union. Some of them 
were registered with the state, but many of them were not. But even those that were registered still had their activities fairly controlled. So, for example, things like baptisms, you know, they have they practice full body baptisms. So how do you do that uh, without anyone noticing that you're doing it? <laughs> but they had ways they would, for example, um, it would informally, orally travel throughout the group that they should all be on a certain train headed in a certain direction. Um, they didn't know where they were going, but it was clear that one person in each car would give a signal that this is where we get off. And so they would that way, nothing is ever written down, nothing is ever known in advance. Um, and, and they would then, you know, disembark at a particular station and then um, they quietly could follow uh, and all then amass at, for example, a body of water where then they could do baptisms. And it's true, one has to say, sometimes they would arrive there and the police would be there ready to arrest them. And that was often the case too. Um, and the punishments for that varied, uh, you know, according to the, the the period in Soviet history, sometimes draconian, sometimes, you know, arrest and, and other times fines and things of that nature. Um, but there were always punishments of sorts, and yet they were willing to risk this and willing to consistently um, organize those kinds of collective rituals in public space. Do you have a do you have a sense of in terms of like everyday worship, both you know as as a community or as a group for as a group of people? You know, I'm I'm struck by this 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 example where. Kaleda is holding these masses in his apartment because like like even with your example of the baptism, a lot of religious practice requires a certain space. And and in terms of like kind of everyday practice, what kind of other spaces or even practices of religiosity did they reinvent or change to avoid detection or do it clandestinely? Oh, you're right about that. And that's especially, this is why the Soviet system was especially punishing to orthodoxy with, you know, and icons and iconostasis. This is very difficult. Um, uh, but of course, and this is, I think, one of the reasons also precisely why Protestants and a whole variety of small sects and splinter groups were able to nonetheless take root and thrive because they had informal um, mechanisms of leadership, uh, which often, by the way, fell to women. Uh, even though most of the predominant uh, religious traditions in that part of the world are fairly patriarchal and, and the leadership is decisively male. Um, so that was one adaptive mechanism. And you pointed out about you know, this, the, the service in the apartment. There was a real domestication. Many, many religious groups in winter especially did resort to at-home forms of worship um, as a way of uh, of you know, prolonging the group and its collective practice. But of course, this is vastly um, um, facilitated if there aren't all kinds of ritual objects and specific ritual prescriptions. And I think that's why um, there were a lot of splinter groups that that formed and um, and others, as I said, such as Protestants, that don't have as many spatial and uh, demands in terms of the objects that are necessary for a variety of rituals. They, those types of groups uh, existed, but they practiced, it's important to note, at great peril. I mean, there are some groups, for example, that would even have uh, underground worship space um, because that was, of course, far harder to detect. 
and not everybody, you know, even if 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 services or any kind of religious practice went to an apartment, what you always had to be very careful about neighbors. There were all kinds of elaborate practices, for example, putting will, uh, pillows by by the windows so nobody out on the street would ever hear any kind of singing, for example. Um, and you always had to have uh, some other kind of story that, oh, we're, this is we're celebrating a birthday or something. That's why there are 10 people crammed into this apartment. Or there were always potential risks that were courted if one attempted to collectively practice religion. But the important point is, is that people still did it. They still did it. You mentioned a little bit about the gender dynamics here, which I think is really interesting because as as you noted, you know, a lot of the, at least, let's take Russian Orthodoxy as an example. Uh, it's a very patriarchal, male-centered in terms of the religious practices. Women have a, a, a role, but it's a relegated role. How, how did this work in terms of gender? You said that women took leadership roles. Well, um, to the extent, well, those uh, it, when they could, I mean, that is to say, or or when um, when circumstances demanded, there was, uh, you know, often no other way they, they did. Um, so it was under those kinds of circumstances, I think, that you did have uh, women as leaders. But um, there's, I think, whether one speaks about the former Soviet Union or elsewhere in the world, there's a very uh, significant gender component to those who practice religion and especially practice it collectively. Um, you know, in, in a place like Ukraine, where I'm, where uh, I do my research currently, you know, uh, religion over time, of course, has taken on many, many different kinds of meaning, and I see, you know, an enormous sea change occurring now, uh, much as it did under the Soviet period. So that, of course, you know, spills over into who exactly um, uh, are the leaders and whether it's desirable to be a leader, um, who are the practitioners, who who shows up in church and um, what it means to show up. And so once again, I, I currently see, you know, a, a shift uh, in that far more men um, are involved in religion today. But during the Soviet period, um, while the religious leadership, um, probably by and large across most professional groups was male, um, there was always a significant component uh, of women among the worshipers. And to the extent that religion then was very often pushed into domestic spaces, into the home, that only reaffirmed that. Now, collapse of communism, 1991, there, you already have a, a religious renaissance coming to fore already in the 1980s, really growing and growing. Um, but with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you, of course, get the reinstitutionalization of religion. Uh, and so how does how does that the, the end of the USSR change in terms of these people who are worshiping underground in, in the Soviet system? Now they're able to worship openly. How does their practices change? Oh, well, it's going to have a vast, uh, vast influence on all of that, because not only are the conditions under which one could be religious, but also suddenly then the choice of how to be religious uh, widens, too. I mean, I mentioned the huge flow of missionaries. Um, it's not just Protestant missionaries. I mean, virtually every uh, religious group you can think of was uh, interested in gaining a foothold in that part of the world because they saw it as, depending on the perspective, either, you know, an untapped market or a group of souls who needed to be saved or, but the point was there were many people who were interested and open and there was a chance to um, establish and build uh, religious institutions. So in other words, the choice of not just 
to be religious or not to be religious, but what kind of a religious person would you be? Um, that all uh, that all came back, and that posed certain challenges for historic churches like Orthodoxy, where there had um, over time there had been this sense that if one was um, Ukrainian or if one was Russian, one was of course of course Orthodox. Um, but suddenly, you know, there became the possibility to make another choice. Um, and that coincided also with the same moment when different states, and I, I would say here this goes far beyond orthodoxy, when we start speaking about in countries in the Caucasus or in Central Asia, the same is true, where those successor states to the former uh, Soviet republics also began to take a very vested interest in promoting, if not a state church, then a national church, or in some way coming to shape and, if not define, um, religiosity in these newly created states and uh, that was creating nations as quickly as possible. And the reinstitutionalization of, say, the Russian Orthodox Church or even it, it is Islamic institutions um, the ones that are more kind of centralized religious worships uh, and systems, was there tension between people who've been practicing already for years outside of this institutional framework? Once the effort to reinstitutionalize, that were, were there tensions in trying to incorporate those informal practices into the formal practices of the church and, and worship? Well, for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, informal practices have always been significant. Uh, let's just say speaking in terms of orthodoxy. Um, and this became, of course, enhanced uh, uh, during the Soviet period. So, for example, um, during the Khrushchev's anti-religious campaigns, and the, which began in the late 50s, um, and efforts to shut down uh, churches. They monitored churches and who would attend uh, quite sharply. Uh, but they found out in short order that very soon they also had to monitor cemeteries because, for example, religious practices just then became uh, moved to cemeteries. There's very often a continuation uh, in the Soviet period that very often, you know, looks at various national um, various national groups, almost in a kind of a folkloric kind of a way. And there were institutes that studied folklore as a way of acknowledging cultural differences within the Soviet Union. But a lot of uh, what was what was studied and what was even um, observed as a folk tradition, very often, I think, could have been described as a pagan or what one would could call new age today. That is to say, it, it traded on the understanding that there were certain um, uh, otherworldly forces that were uh, existed in nature or in uh, in specific places. And so even during the Soviet period, you know, there was senses about a, a sacred grove or, uh, or waters having special kinds of powers or certain practices that one could could engage in that would either recognize the afterlife or enhance fertility or all of these kinds of things. So there were there were always a, a an ongoing practice of these folk practices. They were couched as folk practices because then they weren't religion, and then you were less likely to get in trouble for it. But all of those kinds of practices, and and I very often. Um, Think about really the extensive way in which death is commemorated in this part of the world. Um, uh, and 
I see that sort of emphasis on commemorating death, whether it be the death of an individual or historical events that yielded tragic numbers of death, um, that is sort of a displacement or an extension of a religious impulse into another domain, one that is not uh, a strictly religiously institutional, institutionally confined space. And, and I think that's where commemorations, historical commemorations and sites of commemoration took on such great meaning during the Soviet period. Um, but they then became sacred spaces of sorts and were, um, if you will, sort of an alternative form of religiosity that very often involved religious sentiments, religious practices and, and certainly notions of the sacred. So that kept all of that alive. I want to ask you a few questions about your new book, Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine. Um, and in that book, you look at the intersection of politics, religion, and national identity with religion. And you just mentioned a little bit ago this effort to create a new new nations out of, out of the, the end of, of communism. Um, talk about how these intersect in Ukraine over the last 30 years or so. Well, in Ukraine, it's a particularly um, sharp example because even – Throughout the 20th century, there were several moments when there were attempts to create uh, an independent Ukrainian state, and they almost always found a parallel in trying to create an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, thinking specifically right after the revolution, when you had uh, the creation of a church that was never formally recognized by the greater international Orthodox authorities, but it was a church that existed and certainly one that thrived in the diaspora. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, there was another attempt to create an independent Orthodox Church. So perhaps it's not surprising then if we think about after 2014, after the Maidan protests, the end of which came along with the, the removal from office of Viktor Yanukovych, who was a pro-Russian president, and a reaffirmation of a, uh, an intended European uh, orientation of the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian people, and, and by extension, meaning like uh, legislation and greater geopolitical positions and policies that would be far, far more in keeping with Europe, let's say, than, than Russia. Uh, perhaps it's not surprising then that um, this is when other efforts that had always been ongoing since the collapse of the USSR to gain an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church, of course, took on renewed urgency after the annexation of Crimea and the beginning of the provocation of armed separatism in eastern Ukraine. In this, the worsening and worsening relations between Ukraine and Russia, we hear a lot about in popular media about the Russian Orthodox Church and its its relationship to Putin's government and the Russian state. I don't recall hearing a lot so much about the Ukrainian independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church's relationship with the Ukrainian government. Could you speak a little bit to what is the place of institutionalized religion in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis the state and the government? Well, the Ukrainian case is particularly complex. Um, so I'll try in broad brushstrokes to tease out some of the complications that everyone is contending with uh, in an effort to try to explain why this war between Russia and Ukraine has yielded uh, a proxy war, I would call it, that on, on a religious level. So uh, in 2018, with tremendous uh, support from the Ukrainian state, and I might even add tremendous support from 
the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is probably one of the most significant religious minorities in Ukraine, that it's a they practice an Eastern rite, but yet they're in communion with Rome. So they are um, they're so-called Greek Catholics, Byzantine Catholics, but they're formally integrated into the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they were strong supporters of the creation of an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. This church was created at the end of 2018, um, and then it was formally given, recognized as autocephalous um, by the Ecumenical Patriarchate in Constantinople, as they call it, currently Istanbul today. So at the beginning of 2019, we have institutionally uh, the creation of an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. The problem is, um, for the Russian Orthodox Church, is that there had been, well, there still is a, a, an alternative structure, and they call themselves the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is the new one, which is called the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. These, all these are very, very similar names, which make it makes it very difficult. But the original one was institutionally connected to Moscow. So with the demonstrated Russian support for armed combat in Eastern Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, this of course changed many people in Ukraine's attitudes towards Russia. And then of course, any kind of negative sentiments have been massively and aggravated since the full-scale invasion in February, 2022. So this puts what is what still is today the single largest institutional church in Ukraine, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, in a very, very precarious position. So it is still institutionally linked to the Russian Orthodox Church, led by Patriarch Kirill, who is a vociferous supporter of the war. And that puts this church squarely at odds with the laity, with many, many parish clergy, and even some of the members of the church hierarchy that are attempting to reformulate the relationship of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church with the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, at this point, there's enormous amount of pressure within the church, which is fracturing the church. And of course, uh, individual people do as, as they usually do. That is to say, they vote with their feet. So there are um, many people who, in a formal way, have abandoned that church. Having said that, people have not necessarily abandoned their local church their local church where, let's say, where they were married, where their kids were married, where their parents perhaps helped renovate that church after 1991. So people tend to have allegiances that are either on a very, very local level to their local church and their local parish priest, or on a very broad level to a confessional allegiance to orthodoxy. They see themselves as orthodox, but they divorce that allegiance to orthodoxy from its institutional base in a church that is connected back to Russia. So that is that makes what is currently today the single largest in terms of number of parishes and in terms of three of the of the five most significant monasteries are also in the or had been in the hands of that particular church. Um, but under conditions of wartime, a church that is squarely, unabashedly Ukrainian 
and is increasingly using Ukrainian as opposed to Church Slavonic, that is increasingly um, adopting the Julian calendar, that is to say, celebrating Christmas on December 25th, as opposed to um, the usual January 6th, January 7th, according to the old calendar. Um, so you have then, right within Orthodoxy, um, sharp divisions that are emerging as a result of this war. And because of the close association of national identity with religious identity, you have people um, who are put in a very difficult position who wish to um, condemn this war and condemn Russian aggression against Ukrainians, but nonetheless perhaps feel an allegiance to their local church that still by and large um, is connected to an institutional framework that ultimately traces its highest authority back to Moscow. Wow, that is complicated. It's very, very complicated. <laughs> I can I can see just as an on an everyday level how how contradictory and complicated it is. Um, since 2014, the Maidan, and you have a rebirth or acceleration of Ukrainian national identity, patriotism, civic identity. Do you are we also seeing a, a resurgence of religious, uh, another renaissance? One may say of religious worship in Ukraine or religious identification. Well, gosh, I mean, so much is changing right now. I think after the Maidan, what we did see was a demonstrated rise in the moral authority that people recognize that clergy had. Um, there, there has always been a preponderance of people practicing religion, but not necessarily in institutional confines. There's a sort of a residual effect of, you know, suspicion of institutions as they're always making you do things you don't want to do and a suspicion of people in power that included clergy, you know, that, oh, they secretly drive a Mercedes and, uh, and yet they're asking you to give money and the like. Um, so there was always sort of a residual reticence to fully trust uh, institutions and their leaders. But during the Maidan, um, that was really in many respects a pivotal moment um, whereby few Ukrainians forget that their, for example, clergy formed a human chain to separate themselves from the special forces and the protesters. Um, and so that was one stunning development. The second stunning development was that the special forces didn't shoot there was a tremendous outpouring of support for the people, whereby, for example, uh, St. Michael's Cathedral in Kiev, just from the very first violent confrontation, opened its doors and allowed people to take refuge there. It eventually became even a makeshift hospital, a place where people would go to sleep and to eat and to warm up. In short, um, during the Maidan, a multitude of religious uh, organizations, with the exception of, once again, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, that church, they were not allowed to overtly in any way support, participate, or encourage the, the Maidan. But virtually all other religious organizations were active, active supporters in the protests and active supporters in sweeping reform and vocal voices condemning uh, the annexation of Crimea and the Russian support for armed combat in eastern Ukraine. You know, given the the historical ties through religion between 
Ukrainians and Russians, even though, as you just said, a lot of it is breaking down and fracturing. But nonetheless, still, even even if it's institutionally kind of separated, a lot of the practices and, and beliefs have a lot of overlap. Do you see any potential of religion being a basis for any future reconciliation between both peoples? Or do you think that this divorce is going to be a hard divorce (laughs) of sorts? I I think both. Yeah. uh, Yes. And yes. I (laughs) mean, in other words, (laughs) (laughs) um, I I think um, initially we are witnessing a hard break. Almost all religious groups uh, severed uh, any kind. There had been previously unions that, uh, we speak about, you know, various Jewish groups and Protestant, Catholics, right on, Muslims, right on down the line. They um, engage in many, many cooperative endeavors where the networks reached across state borders. Uh, almost all of those networks have been shattered because of the war. Um, and so on one level, the divorce, as you called it, uh, which is quite, I think, applicable but within orthodoxy, um, is not surprising. That's just the last large religious institution to uh, try to orchestrate some kind of a break. So um, that so between Russians and Ukrainians, that's a long term um, prospect, I think. However, this war has taken a society that was facing a great many challenges um, and given them exponentially more. I mean, when when this war ends, uh, Ukraine is going to be faced with the unenviable prospect of rebuilding cities from start to finish, roads, schools, hospitals, and the like. Uh, There has been a stunning devastation, and we have a traumatized population. Having said that, um, religious institutions with their transnational networks are among the most efficient providers of humanitarian aid and dependable, tangible material significance. So in other words, um, across, again, a wide confessional spectrum, you have its religious groups that are the ones that are very often, let's say, going into Mariupol when it's uh, actively under bombardment. Large international aid agencies won't enter, most of them will not enter active combat zones, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, that puts all their people at risk. But very often it's the religious ones that go regardless, and they tend to be smaller, less bureaucratic, and as a result, more agile. So they, uh, religious institutions have been very significant in terms of providing all kinds of tangible forms of assistance. And I would hope, although it remains to be seen how this orthodox split plays out, uh, uh, if it's played out in a certain way, it could actively create social tensions in Ukraine and actively replicate the institutional fractures uh, that the Orthodox Church has uh, on the Ukrainian population. Obviously, no one wishes for that. One hopes that should there be a full, you know, a full divorce or a full break or some kind of integration, that it will be on a peaceful level. And then one hopes then that in keeping with a general Orthodox institutional tradition, um, if there emerges a single Orthodox church, that it will be capable of helping. Uh, it will have the moral authority and the allegiance to actually play a role in reconciliation and conflict mediation among Ukrainians. I think that is going to have to happen too. Um, So that's the first big lift is reconciliation and peacekeeping among Ukrainians. 
and um, there are not as many. Um, there are some NGOs, but it's the, the the dimensions of the problem are such that it is these kinds of international organizations with transnational connections that can uh, annex resources and expertise from elsewhere. Um, and by this, I mean, again, religious organizations are in a good position to uh, potentially in a good position, we'll have to see how things continue to develop, to play a role in reconciliation first among Ukrainians and reestablishing a, um, a sort of a sense of social solidarity and a sense of well-being, a uh, renewed sense of trust uh, and empathy for others um, before, before they can begin to embark upon what is a, a longer term but equally as important effort to try to establish some form of peaceful coexistence with Russia. That's a really important point that the, the fact that internally needs to be stitched back together before anything externally happens. Um, in, a, in an email you sent me a few days ago, you had one sentence about your new project. And I'm just kind of curious if you could talk a little bit about it. it, it if I remember correctly, and I should have checked it before we came on together, but it has to do with religion and, and animals? Yes. Yeah. So what's so, that all about? <laughs> well, <laughs> well um, so recognizing that this is, as I mentioned, very much of a trauma, uh, traumatized population that's going to be um, – experience urgent needs in terms of therapy, therapy of uh, an emotional, a physical, and, and every other which way. Um, one thing which I've been um, fascinated by uh, in this whole war period is the um, the reluctance and even the steadfast refusal to leave, even refugees, leave the country without their pets. Um, the, uh, all aid organizations have said, we've never seen anything like it. <laughs> People come with turtles, they come with chickens, they come with horses, they come with dogs, cats, and, you know, the whole bit. So that got me thinking, you know, about the therapeutic um, aspects of animals. And I, I myself uh, am an equestrian, I ride horses, and I've long been interested in equine therapy and how much that is a factor here in the U.S. working with veterans of war, both when it comes to anxiety, you know, there's something about dealing with a 1,000-pound animal that um, that is very attuned to your own anxieties. It helps a person uh, relax. And there's also something empowering about somebody who perhaps has lost a leg or an arm and yet can still ride a horse. There is something empowering about that. And I um, have been really stunned at the spontaneous efforts at healing in Ukraine that involve animals. For example, um, that's one thing which they do have. They do not have like a, a, a tradition of, you know, going to a therapist to tell your problem. So that's that really enhances the, the urgency of finding some way to work through the trauma that many people have been exposed to. Uh, but they do have land and they do have quite a lot of livestock. And so there have been um, spontaneous efforts to already that are up and running to use animals in a therapeutic capacity. And I might even add in Yanukovych's um, 
uh, his estate that was confiscated after 2014. They have even created a, a center of equine therapy with his, you know, his his very expensive warm blood horses. <laughs> so um, there are efforts that have started. And so in other words, uh, uh, perhaps a soldier who might not necessarily um, take a therapist will nonetheless engage with animals. And we see the therapeutic value of being able to ride a horse with your child when you can't walk. Um, and when, unfortunately, I would also have to say a place like Ukraine is not as sensitized and is not as developed so as to accommodate people with physical challenges, with mobility or other kinds of challenges. So this is really, really a steep transformation that is going to have to take place in people uh, learning to uh, deal with new bodies um, and new um, new emotional needs and new kinds of reactions. And I do think um, sort of it demonstrated the empathic value of animals uh, and the therapeutic value of animals, I think has been um, in some ways directly and indirectly you know, demonstrated through this war. Perhaps some of your listeners have are aware of Patron, the, the, the little dog, the Jack Russell Terrier that now even has his own little web page. He's a... Uh, <laughs> He, uh, you know, he, he has is detects mines and um, is helping in the effort to demine recently uh, deoccupied areas. But there's uh, in other cities have chosen a cat as their emblem, and you know, some really the cats have come to symbolize a certain kind of of um, uh, yeah, I think empathy and way to for other people among each other and a certain kind of resilience. And so I want to try to study that means of because I think that kind of the, that kind of therapeutic value, there are many, many sadly, you know, traumatized populations in the world for a variety of reasons. But um, there's also animals everywhere. And so there's a way uh, to the extent we can you learn how to perhaps um, appreciate the healing capacities uh, of animals in certain kinds of situations. Um, I think that could perhaps be a useful tool for Ukraine and um, for many other societies that are uh, rebounding from um, certainly these kinds of violent episodes. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's, that's, I can't wait to you know, when you're, when you put some of that stuff out, because as a dog lover myself, I can't imagine leaving my dog behind. <laughs> I mean, she's part of the family, right? And, it, you know, brings a lot of comfort in, in times of, you know, like my daughter is upset. The dog knows. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why when sirens go off and things like that, um, you know, people, it's wrenching for those who have to leave their pets. But sometimes when you're fleeing, especially in an active combat situation, it's do you save the person or do you save the dog? Do you bring the water and the food or do you bring the dog? And those kinds of wrenching decisions, which many, many, many people faced, um, are harrowing and they are haunting for, and they're emblematic of what else has been lost. And, um, and so in that respect, I think animals come to symbolize quite a lot and they uh, help people uh, form bonds and and above all to sort of uh, express a certain kind of empathy and a certain kind of reassurance and comfort. That was Catherine Warner. Catherine Warner is a professor of history, anthropology and religious studies at Pennsylvania State University. And her most recent book is Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is The Eurasian Knot. 
As I said before, Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. I'm not going to reiterate how important it is for you to become a patron. I did all of that at the top of the show. I'll just say that can, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash And if you don't have the means, again, that's cool. I get it. Then spread the word about the show through word of mouth or through social media. That's a big help too. So until next time, bye. Кавказский, любим, любовь, ласки,